0: So this is our last week doing creation to uh, Christmas. I'm like, what's that other word, right? Christmas. Uh, where we've been trying to trace some major themes from the beginning of creation all the way through till Christmas. So that we can have a greater appreciation for what uh, Christmas looks like. So uh, we talked about at first uh, the conflict Uh, that not just Christmas brings, but why there is so much conflict from creation to Christmas and continuing, being that the serpent from the very beginning has been opposed to God's plan. God made a promise that he was going to fix it, uh, the stuff that we messed up in the Garden of Eden, and bring it back to himself. And so there's this constant conflict where Satan has been at war trying to prevent God's promises from taking place. And Jesus being born uh was one of the real like landmark things of oh satan you're losing kind of a situation it's like if you consider like the civil war i know i grew up in pennsylvania so this one might not be as significant for people who didn't grow up in pennsylvania but it's like uh gettysburg it's just like one of those moments where you're like wow like this is significant to the the course of the war not that it literally won the war or anything, but it's one of those like moments where it's like, okay, we we should pay attention to this. And, and you know, I'm sure every place over on the east coast has one of those or multiple of those uh, where they're like this was the real turning point of the war or whatever. But it's one of those times where Jesus being born demonstrated that Satan had been at work for so long to try and prevent God's promises, and then out of nowhere, God completes. A significant portion, which is that the woman would bear a son and that he would crush the head of the serpent. Well, Satan tried to prevent Jesus from being born. Well, that didn't work. Uh, and then the second week we talked about how, uh, one of the tools that he uses to try and wage war on that was, uh, to try and prevent people from having, uh, babies and to cause havoc in that whole area. And then also that, um, Satan, I think you can read in between the lines. This isn't like, this is what the Bible says, but you read in between the lines. Satan's really having a hard time keeping up because he's like, okay, well, I got to focus on these people over here, right? And he's like, ah, no, we can't. Sarah can't have a baby when she's 90, so I'm going to go work on this thing. And then God's like, oh, she's 90. That's not a problem. She can have a baby. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, Satan's not real worried about all of these foreign women. Suddenly, all these foreign women start showing up. And unbeknownst to Satan, they're becoming uh, great-grandmas of Jesus uh, because they're like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. And then they get married into this line and then you know ends up being to David. And it's just fun to watch uh, Satan kind of chase his tail where he's like, I don't know what's going on next. And then out of the clear blue sky uh, when Jesus was born, God's like, hey, I got a new one. Let's have a virgin have a birth, you know, that would be fun, because he wouldn't be expecting that, <laughs> and suddenly, boom, some some woman who's who's like, I'm, I'm not married, I haven't slept with anybody, what is going on, uh, and so that's uh, what we covered uh, last week. This week, uh, I want to cover a slightly different, not so much on the conflict side of things, but just the, the results of uh, our... The fall or the results of the fall um, in one particular aspect and how that has developed and has now gained a greater um, picture in Christmas so when we uh when Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them each and the serpent a curse, and then also kicked them out of the garden. You remember that the, we can't let them stay here because if they eat from the tree of life they're going to live this way forever so let's get them out and then put post the guard right so i want us to consider that theme of being excluded from the presence of god that's all i'm going to give you for right now i'm just going to let pass so around and let you mumble around where do we see that you don't have to start from there you can just we can piece it all together eventually we'll throw it in some sort of chronological order but where else in specifically Old Testament because Christmas kind of starts the New Testament um, do we see uh, people and their exclusion and you know potential like how would you ever get into the presence of God so and to unmute this and test the Michael
1: because that's his job now Um, well, the first one that comes to mind, just because that's sad and it's a yesterday. um, <laughs> <laughs> was, um, that, I guess the first one that comes to mind is when they're in the wilderness, when the when the Israelites are in the wilderness, and they're all been, like, bitten by the snake, and, like, everybody's sick and dying, and, uh, you know, it's, like, right there, it kind of probably, I mean, it seemed hopeless, right? And even Moses was like, all right, I'm just going to do what you say because this seems insane, right? I'm going to make this, you know, bronze serpent and hanging off a pole, right? And um, I don't know, I thought it was great because there's a spot in the chosen, and I don't know if it's in the Bible, I guess, but Joshua comes to him and is like, what are you doing? Like people are dying out there. And Moses is just like, look, this is what I've learned. You don't question like i learned back in the waters mirror but you don't question so we're just going to do this <laughs> so that it was an act of faith so i thought that kind of was probably a moment of like we're done for it's never gonna get better um just the whole exile of israel from their own nation it's a pretty easy one <laughs> well and a lot of like God leaving the temple, too. Just being like, I'm even taking myself away from this, and then eventually you're going to get taken away from this. Everything that was ever promised to you. Um, This whole, in a sense, different Eden of new land, that's everything you could ever want it to be. But you mess up so bad, like, nope, you're just, we're done here. (laughs) God again. I mean, one, you know, classic Bible story. Jonah just... He should have trusted. (laughs) It's an example of, like, you should have listened. And also the whole thing of, you can't escape God. You can't get away from what God's calling you to do. And even what you think is best or what you want to happen isn't necessarily what God is going to do in the end. So, it's just kind of cool. (laughs) Uh, Maybe on a more individual basis, I'm thinking of uh, um, David's sin with Bathsheba and how that created separation from him and his fellowship with uh, the Lord while he was in a state of unconfessed sin.
0: All right, so we're get we're hitting lots of things, right? Is that our sin is a cause of why we're separated from God's presence, right? Um, and uh, I like to say it different um, because of the way I grew up. So if you grew up this way, then I would maybe tell you it the opposite. But um, I grew up hearing that. Uh, God's presence can't stand, no, God God can't stand the presence of sin. Uh, and there's an element of truth to that, but uh, because that's how I grew up, I would rather say it this other way, is that my sin can't stand the presence of God. Is that I think that God's presence purifies us from sin, so if we find ourselves in sin, we know that we're not in the presence of God because sin can't last there which is what I think the picture of heaven is, is that we're with God for all of eternity, which means sin can't be, because God's presence casts it out. Okay, so, uh, our sin is what is one of the major causes of us um, suffering from a lack of being in God's presence, because ultimately our sin is we chose to leave God's presence in order to pursue something else. Um, And, that's sort of what Adam and Eve did. You know, God's you know, manifest presence wasn't there when they ate from the tree. But knowing what God's presence would mean for them, they still decided to choose—they choose to leave that relationship to go try something different. And then when God's presence comes back, they're like, well, this doesn't work. And then suddenly now they have to be put out uh, away from God's presence. Um, because it's not just the act that God's presence would purify with fire, as um, Peter would say. Uh, it, it also uh, would purify by fire the person. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but people don't well in fire. So uh, God in his mercy put us away just enough so that we could survive even though we were sinners and then made this promise I'm going to fix this because this isn't the way I want it God doesn't want him and us to be separate yet that is what had to happen so that we didn't just straight up die (laughs) you know God's like no this isn't going to work so you go over there so now I want us to think about how is that symbolized, how is that pictured in the Old Testament, because I think we get it right. You know, so we have people. You know, Jonah tries to run from God, and God's like, "All right, I'll swallow you with a big fish." <laughs> you know, like, uh, and uh, you got uh, the people of Israel that you know they're like, "Oh, we can do whatever we want," and God's like, "No, I'm going to leave now." But what other symbolic artistic literary ways does the old testament picture the the separation between God's presence and us
1: so I would say the veil, okay.
0: Which
1: veil? in the Holy of Holies. That's the one I assume you're talking about the reason I asked is there's I, I, was, just I always break. get the I always get the easy ones. <laughs> okay, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the,
0: the in the in the tabernacle, right? Uh there's a, a veil uh be, between uh the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, the holy of holies has the ark of the covenant that God's you know, manifests like visual presence. Obviously God is all present, but I like, think we affirm that. But God is saying, like, I am here, okay? Uh, and there's a veil, and, and only one time a year was one person allowed to enter past that veil after having done, like, all of this other stuff in order to be allowed to get through that veil so that he could do the one thing that he was told that he needed to do
1: I have for a day you atonement. You're picking my answer. Oh, sorry. That's the around. answer Daryl
0: gave, so... You're picking but. my answer, though. You go ahead.
1: All right, I'm sorry, I have to cut you off. No, though. go for it. The priesthood. Okay. Like, the Levites. Like, the fact that the Levites had to... The Levites were the only ones that could, right? Like, that was a separation as well, where it was like God said, you know, not any one of you could just randomly come to me. Like, you have to go through this chain of command. Sorry, I had to cut
0: No, no, thank you. Because <laughs> we were going to get there eventually, so I'm glad we did that. The whole system of the tabernacle is degrees of separation, right? So we we think about that veil because it's, like, the first one, right? I got presence, and then we got a veil. And we think, like, that's it. But the holy place, only certain people, only certain priests were allowed to be even in that spot. That, like, and then there was... Um, there was a... Uh, Michael just did this, so I should know this better. But there's like a basin, and then an altar, and then another thing, and another thing. <laughs> but, yeah, there's a courtyard where there's like a fabric fence all the way around. So it's like a chain link fence with like things woven in between. Only better because when you're traveling in the desert, you don't want to haul a chain link fence. So it's a fabric fence where like every other Israelite wasn't allowed to go. Like it, there was just these like these steps, and this is the same thing that was pictured from the thing in Eden, right? Can you remember? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and there's, you know, I don't know that the Bible specifically says this, but in my head, there's a hedge, right? And then there's like a gate, and then there's these cherubim guarding the entrance, right? Which are repictured in that veil in the tabernacle where you got these cherubims that are saying, you can't come in here because you are a sinner, and this place is filled with holiness. So we have degrees of separation all the way out, which then gets reiterated again in the temple. But I don't want to keep going because I want to hear what Cindy has to say. Or unless
1: Becky Becky has it. Did you have it? No, so I just... <laughs> <before> <laughs> okay. Becky, we're trying to force her to come up with something. <laughs> um, it actually was like an addition to the courtyard thing because wasn't there like a certain part where like men were allowed to go but like even women weren't allowed to go? So that kind of like shows even all the way back to Eden where God was like, okay, well, like... Yeah, you did this, but like you are still the first person that did it, so we're gonna keep you the farthest away from me, in a way.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's what I, that's why I stopped where I did because I was like, I think maybe this is where it's going. That that practice uh, was made more typical once the temple was founded. That there were places that um, if you were a Gentile, you could only go in here. And then if you were an Israelite, you could go in here. If you were an Israelite male, you could get a little bit closer. And then if you were a Levite, you could get closer than if you were... Right? Uh, And all of that isn't to say that God doesn't want those people near him. It's not like, oh, I really don't like the Gentiles as much as I like the Jews. It's just a matter of him expressing, like, here's the deal. Like, you all are inside of my presence as close as you can stand to be. But uh, it does demonstrate that there is a separation between us and God uh, that is not God's intention, as God's intention demonstrated in Genesis 1 and 2. Like, that's what God intended, is for people to be in his presence all the time, every day, with no shame, no problems at all. That was his intention. And we screw it up, and now this is our new reality. I think that, like I said, I think in our apologetics class, like this is the thing we need to grab onto to help us understand and better frame our answers to people who say, How could a loving God allow natural disasters and all this other stuff, and good people to die, and bad people to live? Is this, like, we can just, instead of arguing and trying to get God off the hook, because God doesn't want to get off the hook, we can just say, like, I hear you saying that the world is broken. And I agree. This world that we live in isn't right. And we can all be mad and sad and upset about it. Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. Okay. Like, instead of being like, well, you know, just because a bad thing happened, how do you know that Satan did it? Like, we don't need to do that. Because the world is broken. But then what we can do is offer a bit of hope and say, the world is broken. And God has said it's broken. We agree. we know experientially that it's broken. And God said he's in the process of fixing it. And this is where we're at on that path of getting the world fixed. And is it frustrating? Yes. Am I do I know all of why things happen? No. But what I do know is that this world doesn't operate. And the fact that you can identify the world doesn't operate the way it should demonstrates that you know that there's something better that should be. And Christianity says that that's coming. God's working to make that happen because we all know like, people shouldn't die. And especially good people shouldn't die. If you think about it from the lens of Scripture, that's what God's doing, right? He's giving people eternal life in his presence that is eternally good where nothing bad is ever going to happen again, right? So the world that we live in is broken, and that's the, the degrees of separation. Anything else come to mind when we talk about ways that the Bible depicts our separation between us and God? I almost gave you the mic. Daryl, because you're scratching your forehead. <laughs> Alright, well, I'll do this one and then maybe it will jolt somebody else's memory too. Um, so, why I asked Daryl about which veil he's talking about, um, Michael just did this in Exodus. And, um, Moses goes to talk to God, right? And he comes back and his face is glowing. And then the people are like, I can't, can't look at him, can't look at him. So he puts a veil on his head until his face stops glowing. (laughs) But that is just a picture of being in God's presence changes someone to be something that, like, even that secondhand exposure to God's glory, the people were like, I can't handle it. Let's cover that thing up. Um, Obviously, they weren't, like, dying from it, but it's an artistic way of symbolizing the same thing is that once you get close enough to God's presence, things change about you. Uh, and then, you know, even that secondhand exposure of Moses then leaving God's presence and Moses re-entering the community, the community is like, ah, oh, nope, that's too close for us. We have the same degrees of separation, which I think is where most of these separation things from the the tent of meeting and tabernacle and the temple come from with Mount Sinai. They're like, hey, no one touched the mountain. And so everyone was like, here's a great idea we Jews are really bad about listening to God's instruction. Let's put a fence up <laughs> so, that, so that our livestock doesn't touch it, so that you don't touch it, so your kid doesn't touch it. we got to put a fence up. Just put a fence everywhere. Um, and so it's just another way of the biblical authors demonstrating how we are separated from God's presence, and yet God's presence is the very thing that we need. Right? Because if we're sinners and we need our sin taken from us, We have to get close enough to God's presence, which is the only thing that can purify out our sin. But because of our fallen nature, we can't get into God's presence without also dying, which is a problem, right? Because we'd all love to live without sin, not just be like, hey, I'm finally dead without sin. So good, (laughs) you know. So any other things before we take this theme even further? I'd like to come back to Becky's thing, but uh, about how the
1: Old Testament mostly,
0: uh, mostly just the Old Testament pictures our separation from God. You know, it starts in the garden when he kicks them out. We talk about the tabernacle in the temple, about Moses' veil, uh, about how it, it demonstrates that, you know, we can't be inside God's presence uh, without so, without dying, basically, but that's the thing we need in order to remove our sin. Even under, uh, yeah, and
1: yeah. Even under like, Gentiles and Jews and women and men and the Levites and like.
0: So Becky had said something. Oh, you had another thing. Go for it.
1: I had said something else. Oh, I thought no. I had another thing I needed to say. No. I, have, I do have another thing to say. You go ahead and
0: say the other thing. I was just going to circle back to something you said earlier.
1: Ah, well, I was going to say it could still Michael's thunder of Isaiah be God's presence and needing to have his mouth touched in order to be purified in a vision, mm-hmm. dream sense of not maybe physically being in God's presence, but still right. that need of recognizing, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. This is a bad place for me right now. <laughs> now
0: please don't let me die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's a, a a lot of times in, in the visions uh, and encounters with, uh, and we talked about this in, uh, in, Christ, uh, in Christ in the Old Testament, where uh, God would show up, but in in a in a form that isn't His full, very you know presence of glory. Uh, but even at that, people would be like, cool. you know, like I don't know, I want to get how close I want to get to you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about this." And like you're saying, you know, people have visions of heaven, and they're, and they're like, "Yeah, this, I'm, am too sinful to be here. <laughs> I hope I don't get annihilated." Kind of a situation. Um, and then go, circling back to what you had said uh, early on about the, the Israelites being sent into captivity. And and God leaving the temple. That's in Ezekiel 30-something, I think. Uh, Maybe it was earlier. Anyway, God's presence slowly, in Ezekiel's vision, moves from the Holy of Holies in the temple, walks its way out, all the way out the western gate. And it says, Jerusalem, you're on your own. Good luck. Uh, Which leads then into uh, the... More or less, final captivity, and we just talked about this in our sermon series, uh, Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, not only did God's presence leave, but His entire protection of the of His people left, and then now they're out. But then God sends a message by the way, a couple people, and says, "Like this isn't permanent, but boy, something's got to change on the inside of you uh, because this is, this is this doesn't work." Uh, and so he promises to bring them back, which is more or less what we covered. Um, sends them back. Um, with Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple. It's lame. They rebuild uh, the religious system, and they keep falling and failing and being miserable at it. Then they rebuild the walls. And, you know, they do it really quick, but they have to, like, cut out, like, two-thirds of the city because they don't have enough manpower or time we need to have that much enclosed and then uh, they're like okay well now we got it let's let's do it and then Nehemiah comes back and everyone's just sitting all over the place again uh, and so you know like I said that kind of is the end of the narrative if you follow chronologically like that's kind of the end it's the end of Nehemiah and he's like
1: god <laughs>
0: this is not like if you deal with these people Based on even the the consensus of the people, we've got no shot. But it, like, if for some reason you could just remember me a little bit more than what everybody else is doing, we might have a shot. Because like, here I am, I'm trying, I'm doing my best. Just remember that I tried. <laughs> and then here I think is the the hidden picture is that after, maybe a couple more prophecies after that, in Nehemiah, um, there's 400 years of silence. God literally doesn't say anything to his people. The temple's back. God's presence as a light and smoke never is recorded having come back. The temple's there, but God's physical visual presence is not. Um, the country is back in its capital city, and it's not anything worth talking about. And you, know, you see everything in the Old Testament, the prophets were like, in Zion, everyone's gonna, you know, exalt the mountain of Zion, and it's like, yeah, that ain't gonna happen. And then God doesn't send any more prophets, doesn't send any more messages, me- me- messages, and then, you know, nothing. Just nothing. For ten generations. And then, that's where Christmas comes. Because, and again, you turn to Luke. Luke, and then I think we'll start in chapter one. Yep, Luke one, and then in starting in verse five, I'm not going to read this whole thing. You should uh, read this whole thing. Uh, I think that you know we. I grew up in a Christian school, and we every grade you went up, you memorized a different set of verses of Luke two. So like Luke two, I've got memorized in the King James pretty solid. Uh, But like that's not all of Christmas. So I think you should back up. And you know, if you want to skip the first four verses, which are just the opening of the, the book of Luke, and they're like, hey, you told me to write this, so here I am writing it. Um, but Christmas starts, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, is uh, that uh, Zechariah was chosen to be the priest to go into the Holy of Holies. So there, here they are, 400 years later, in a more glorious temple because of the political atmosphere of which they're living but they're still doing their religious thing 400 years even though they haven't heard a single thing from God they've returned from their captivity they don't see the visual presence anymore and they just still doing their thing Zechariah gets sent in to do the thing and inside the Holy of Holies somebody talks to him. now it's not God uh it's not you know, like and you know, 400 years these guys are going in and out of the Holy of Holies experiencing basically nothing, unlike what uh the priests like Solomon's Day would have you know, they're like needing sunglasses. These this guy's just and so he doesn't he just kinda goes in to do his thing and suddenly somebody talks to him and it's the angel Gabriel and he says, All right, uh verse thirteen And the second half, don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, who was barren, will have a son. You'll name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, God in the spirit of power of Elijah, and turn the fa- hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people, which is a reference to Malachi chapter four. Uh, if you don't know that, that it's uh, Malachi promises that God is going to send someone ahead of the Messiah to prepare the people, and they've been waiting for 400 years, and nobody's been sent. This guy sounds like he's going to be pretty cool, but it doesn't sound like he's going to fix much of anything, but he's going, to, he's going to maybe bring some sort of revival to the people of Israel, saying, like, hey, let's get ready, because God's about to do something. It's been 400 years uh, where nothing's happened. Uh, you look back in Israel's past, there was another 400 years where God appeared to be pretty silent. You know, they got taken down into in Egypt, and they were living there, and they were doing great. Then a new pharaoh shows up, And now he just enslaves an entire people. For 400 years, God does nothing. And then he's like, hey, I'm going to send this guy to lead the way. Okay? So this is what's happening again. An angel breaks the silence from heaven to say, you're going to have a son. I know. I get it. Your wife hasn't been able to have a son. You're getting a little on the old old side. Not as old as Abram and Sarah. Uh, And then Zechariah says, well, how can I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is well along in years. It's a good thing he's in the Holy of Holies, because then his wife couldn't have heard him say that.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> he would have gotten it, gotten it good. Uh, and the angel says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. Now listen. <laughs> like, if angels had a little bit of violence in them, <laughs> shake them, just listen. And then he tells them, you're not going to be able to talk. Because you didn't you didn't believe me the first time. So, like, here's, you need a sign. First of all, I'm Gabriel. I stand before God. You, you know, this presence that Israel hasn't had for 400 years. Yeah, that's where I live, is there. And I was here to tell you this, and because you don't listen, I'm just going to make it so you can't talk. Okay? And then you're going to know that it's for real. And suddenly, all of a sudden, Zachariah can't talk. So he comes out of the Holy of Holies and he can't talk, and people are like, what's the deal with him? I don't know. Obviously, apparently, from what I can tell, he's still able to write, he's can he just can't talk. So, you know, he tells people what's going on, right? So here we have something new and weird going on, especially compared to there being 400 years of silence, right? So then, uh, uh, Elizabeth ends up having a, conceiving, keeps herself in seclusion for five months. And she says in verse 25, The Lord has done this for me, has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And then, verse 26, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, okay, not of the year, which is what I would expect if we were reading Ezra or Nehemiah, but in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Okay? Well, the last person Gabriel was sent to said, hey, you're going to have this kid, and he's going to prepare the way, way of the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even while he's in his mother's womb. And, uh, you know, he's going to prepare the people. Now he's getting sent to this virgin's uh, house, who's uh, engaged to a guy who's from the house of David. we like, oh, oh, I think I see what's happening here. Uh, and then we have this conversation with Gabriel uh, and Mary saying, like, hey, you're gonna have a kid. And Mary's like, I think you're a little bit early. You see, we're not married yet.
1: <laughs>
0: we're just like in this awkward Jewish thing where it's like, we're basically engaged where we'd have to actually get a legal divorce to separate, but we're not actually married. So I think you might be a little bit ahead of time. And then Gabriel is like, no. And Mary's like, oh, okay. Uh, I guess that's if that's what God wants, that's what He can do, uh, which is a different uh, response than Zechariah. We're like, seriously, who are you? Like, what's going going on here? Uh, and so, of course, with Mary not being married and now is pregnant, and you know, she goes off to her um, her aunt or cousin. I think it's like one of those like first cousin once removed or something, but she ends up going to Elizabeth's house and we have this cool moment before Mary even gets in that John and Elizabeth will, jumps for joy while Mary is coming up to the house because apparently John knows that the baby in Mary is the promised one. So, in the message Gabriel gives to Mary, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son, you'll call him Jesus, because he will be and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So, you're "You're the one to bear the one that we have been waiting for into the world. So, as this continues, obviously, you have to move forward. I think you should read all of Luke 1, which is really long. It's over eighty. it's 80 verses long. Uh, and then we get to the birth of Jesus. Uh, and then uh, what I want to—we're getting close to time here. So obviously, you know, we've talked about this before, about um, Jesus being God in the flesh, right? He's fully God and he's fully man, which is very important for all of Christian theology, basically um but what i want us to see here is uh the significance of that beyond our just simple like theological truths of like how that means that then jesus could die and his his payments can pay for us and because it it's all connected but it's connected to the theme that we've been talking about already is that we were suffering from a lack of exposure to god's presence because we could not withstand it, right? It's like going out in the sun and not wearing sunscreen and being out there on the beach for 20 straight hours, right? Your skin can't handle it. Uh, and so God knows, because he knows everything, he knows like the thing that these people need is to be in my presence. These people can't stand my presence, so I'm going to keep them safe. But this is also keeping them safe from my presence is not a solution. To me, for people with diabetes, not, uh, I think it's type 1, where they're given insulin, like that's not a permanent solution. Like, it's better than dying, but it's not a permanent solution. Because the problem is their pancreas doesn't work, right? So, yeah, we can inject them with insulin and keep them alive. But that doesn't fix that. Fix the problem, right? So, like, here we are having this problem. And with f- God's like, well, for right now, this is what we're going to do. But He's like, that's not going to work as a long term solution. So, what does He do? He sends Jesus, the very exact imprint of God. Jesus, when He's an adult, obviously not while He's in Mary's womb, but <laughs> says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know Father. He sends Jesus, God, in the flesh so that people could stand in the presence of God. So, uh, it's still not exactly the same as what will be in the eternal state. Why I say that is because Jesus shows up and people don't stop sinning. People don't stop being dumb as evidenced by his 12 disciples, okay? <laughs> like, even the people Jesus spent time with, not all of them changed, right? But there was the opportunity to change. And then, as we see, you know, Jesus knew his mission, whereas the people who were around him didn't understand his mission. But Jesus said, like, like, I know what I've been sent here to do. And so then when we can talk about the theology about it. And being fully God, so He's perfect and fully man, which means that He could be a substitute for us. Unlike sheep,s sheep,s <laughs> sheep, and bulls <laughs> and goats, uh, they can't fully atone for us. But a person can. A perfect person could. And as far as how in that thinking, a perfect person would technically be able to have an unlimited supply of atoning power. Right? That they could apply. So, that's what God did, was sent Jesus to be with us in the flesh so that he could then provide the way of salvation to be where we could actually stand the full presence of God. I just love the the idea of this summed up in Hark the Herald Angels thing. Um, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Right? Glory of God still being veiled in this unsightly human being, <laughs> and don't don't throw stones at me. I think John says that um, he's, he was he was nothing to behold. He was just like an ordinary dude. Nobody cared, right? In that person, we see the veiled glory of God, both in his actions and uh, his words, and and how he chose to live his life uh, out of seeking the interests of other people. We see the very person of God in Jesus. So, God, the whole Godhead, veiled in flesh, which is the best proximity that anyone up until that point had been able to experience. You, know, you got this curtain keeping everybody out, and then you got another curtain, a fence curtain. Uh, and then these people got to actually touch Jesus. Uh, that's that's why John's is it got John's gospel or, or John they're so similar, I can't ever remember which one, but John is so mind blown that he touched Jesus. And like the, the, the word became flesh. I touched him. I got to live with him. I rode on a boat with him. And yelled at him? (laughs) I mean, like, I did the whole spectrum. And this is because God chose to send Jesus to repair the problem. We need to be able to be close to God's presence. And we can't. But Jesus could. Jesus could stand in the presence of God. In fact, that's what he's doing right now. No problem. But Jesus also was able to stand in the presence of sinners and say, Yeah, your sin's not really welcome in my kingdom. But I'm here to fix that. I'm here to separate the sin from you so that you can come in. And so here the Godhead being veiled in the flesh and the line in the ago, God had see hail the incarnate deity. So incarnation is a good Christian word for God coming in the flesh flesh, but Jesus being God, but being in our flesh, starts the path of salvation. For the people so that we can return to the presence of God like we were in the Garden of Eden so that our existence can be very good as it once was uh, and I think that uh, there's tons more of it, I mean this is a major biblical theology theme I just want us to consider that the, the fact that Jesus uh, came in the flesh, I mean, he, and we, you know, we think of we, we talk about incarnation a lot on like Christmas, right? But you know, if you think about it, Mary conceived, right? And had her, other than the fact that she hadn't slept with anyone, had a normal pregnancy. That God was sent into that small of a form that not only did John get to touch and handle Jesus, but Mary got to raise (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. Made sure that he had food. You know, and panicked like any good mom would when she lost him. (laughs) I mean, this is is mind-blowing, not just because of the fact that God somehow managed to get into human flesh. I mean, that's that's a blunt, mind-blowing enough thing. The Incarnation is crazy enough for us to try and ponder. But it's such a significant change from the status quo. When the status quo, even when it was good, was that one guy one time every year got to go into this one little secret place and hopefully didn't die and walked back out and then the people were like, okay, good, we're atoned for a year, Right? And this is why Hebrew says like Jesus is so much better. Because the priests, you know, had to do this all the time. They offered sacrifices every day, and then their sacrifices weren't even good enough to cover their things. So they had to do this extra special thing on the day of atonement, so that they would get covered for one year, so that, you know, they didn't all just die, right? Like that was the status quo, and people thought that that was great. Okay, and then Jesus is like, uh, yeah, so here I am. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go sacrifice, uh, and then I'm gonna go sit down because there's nothing else to do. It's done. So why don't you come? After 400 years of silence, like this, it it's one of those like the silence is just for emphasis. Like what's coming next is huge. It's like a jump scare in a movie, right? You get the, the tension, the tension, the tension, <laughs> and then nothing, and then boom! And, and everyone's like, ah! This is a big change. And although, you know, everybody around him that believed that he was a Messiah because uh, that's what uh, they said to the shepherds that born to you this day is, you know, Christ, Jesus, right? It, it's, it's literally, like the shepherds were told the Messiah had just been born, right? That's what Christ means. It's just like transliteration of the word for in Greek for Messiah, just love that we just use Christ all the time. And I'm like, we just use Messiah; it'd be fine. <laughs> he said, "The Messiah, verse 11 today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born to, born for you, in the city of David. The Messiah has just been born. And although that Messiah thing didn't really work out for those people who around him that they thought like, oh, this is great because he's gonna go sit on, his, on David's throne and we're gonna be free from our oppression from these secular governments and we're gonna finally get the The country we wanted, they're like they totally missed it. It didn't end the way they wanted to, but it was a major shift. And it's unfortunate that so many people around Jesus didn't see it. And they just said, like, oh, he's not—he's clearly not the Messiah because we got no kingdom.
1: So many don't see it today because Mm -hmm. it's like we're still wrapped up in like. Oh, Jesus is going to come back and get rid of the government and get rid of this and get rid of that. And it's like, and it's like, you're missing the point that like Jesus can be back today because it's all in how you treat other people and the actions that you take in life that reflect him. You know, and like Ricky came back yesterday from the store and was super upset and frustrated how rude people were. And I looked at him and I said, They're just testing the Jesus in you. Like, are you, you know, you got to go back out. And then he had to go back out and go pick somebody up, like, right away. And so, like, you know, it's like at that point you're like, oh, I just can't. And I was like, just show the light. That's all you got to do. Just show them the light because they're just testing the Jesus in you. But I think it's so interesting because we have so many people that are still even wrapped up in the oh it's the end times, it's the end times and it's like, guys, you are not supposed to be looking there.
0: Like you're looking
1: in the wrong direction.
0: <laughs> so I mean that all leads us to our future hope, right? Because I mean we don't we don't want to pretend like there like this is as good as it gets, right? It's not. Ecclesiastes says this is as good as it gets, and he had the old system, and it was like, <laughs> this is miserable, but it's as good as it gets, so be thankful for it. This isn't it. And I feel like we've done kind of a bad job of communicating that to unsafe people. Like, this life that we live is better than the life we would live without Jesus. No questions asked. But this isn't it. What's going to happen eventually is, like, all the stuff that we're trying to do right now, we're going to actually be successful at because he's going to finally finish the job for us so that we don't have to keep wrestling with sin because he's going to be like, all right, well, now's my time for this kingdom that is going to last forever. So you're welcome. You're sin- Nope, nope. That stays out there. And then we get to live forever in his presence where we can walk up to God any time I don't know that there's day, but any time we want. And then we get to go live the life that God made us to live without any hindrance of what our bad decisions have given to us. We will finally be free. And, you know, I think that that's just the significance of what we're doing right now. It's obviously not the exact same because it's been more than 400 years, but it's like this awkward, like, Time, right? Where we're like, are we done yet? (laughs) Like, like, it's been a while. Are we done yet? And whenever the time is, it's gonna be big. It's gonna be a significant change. But people who have been following the path that God's been laying out will be totally ready. We'll be like, oh, yeah, all right, next chapter. Like, we're ready. And so I want us to just consider the fact that this is why, as Christians, we get amped up about Christmas, is because it was a significant change in the way God related to his people. As I'm trying to not steal too much from Isaiah. like uh, God with us, right? I, mean, I know, I really try. Really try. So, you guys are dismissed, so we gotta go pick up our kids from downstairs. Thank you.